Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloken Bird Show. Um, so we're back. Kinda. Well, in theory, we should have a show next week. When? Next weekend. Maybe. I don't think there's anything on the on the calendar for next weekend. Not your calendar. Oh, actually, no. You're supposed to go out to dinner. Not your calendar. You're you to have go out no to social calendar. You're My calendar fills starting the first of June, and it doesn't break until the thirteenth. Yeah. So let, let's go back two weeks. The reason why we didn't have a show was because we, we looked and we're, there was like nothing to talk about. So we're like, yeah, we know we're not going to have a show next week and there's a race next week, but there's nothing to talk about. So we skipped that one. Then the week after you went away mm-hmm. to the land of heat and humidity. Yes. Um, you're back now. Um, apparently, yeah, you've got stuff going next week, so we might do a show, we might not. We'll see. We'll try. (laughs) No promises. Then a week after that, we don't have a show, because we will be at Road America. Right. Enjoying IndyCar. Yes. Stocking former F1 drivers. Speaking of former, former F1 drivers... Mm-hmm. Um, we have to give a special congratulations out to former F1 driver Marcus Erickson, who this past weekend won the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500, adding himself to a list that Fernando Alonso can't get on. I know. It's like it's like the most exclusive invite list, and Fernando is not invited. Well, there is a more exclusive subset of that list. And the list that we are talking about is former F1 drivers who have won the Indy 500. Right. There's the Triple Crown. Well, I, I wasn't even going with the Triple Crown. I was going with the former F1 world champions who have won the Indy 500. And that is an even smaller list. So that is a list that consists of um, Jim Clark, mm-hmm. um, not Phil Hill. Um, I have the list right here. Let me grab it for you. Graham Hill, Jim Clark, and Mario Andretti. Yes. That's the whole list. Yes. And, you know, if Fernando ever managed to pull this off, he would actually be one of only three two-time two-time Formula One world champions to have won the Indy 500. Right now, there's only two of them. Right. But the Triple Crown is Monaco, mm-hmm. Indy 500, yeah. and the World Championship. Yes. Um, the F1 World Championship. The F1 World Championship. And I believe, what is it, only... Two people hold the triple crown. It, well, it, it's probably Graham just Hill and Jim Clark. and Jim Clark are it. That would be it. But Fernando has yet to finish the five hundred, I believe. That would be correct. So he started, but never finished. Mm-hmm. But both Marcus Erickson and Alexander Rossi have won the five hundred. And they're former F1 drivers. And Takuma Sato, who has done it more than once. See? It is possible. 
One Pablo Montoya is another multi Indy 500 winner who does not have an F1 World Championship to his name. Yes, but he nearly dro- drove into me on in the paddock. So yeah, well, okay. I mean, I can't exactly say that he is a mindful driver of a scooter in a parking <laughs> lot, um, as he nearly ran me over. Maybe I shouldn't have hopped out of the way. <clears throat> Now that I think about it. Well, if you didn't hop out of the way, I was yanking you out of the way. Well, yeah, but, you know, think about the, think about the, the sorrow he would have had if he had run me over. We, we possibly could have worked that into regular, An interview. Vi- <laughs> regular visits to the hospitality of the Ganassi team, you know, because, but no. You had to pull me out of the way. It's your fault. <laughs> It's your fault. Anyway. Anyway. We, th- there were some things that happened while we were gone. Because, of course, we disappear for a week or two and all of a sudden things happen. Well, that's because when we disappear, you're on the phone with all of your buddies at F1 and suddenly things start happening. Well, yeah, there's that. So, first of all, um, you know, we, we talked about how... Um, Michael Andretti was meeting with the FIA with Mohammed bin Salayim in Miami to continue to push for um, a decision and some movement around his application to start a Formula One team. And he's building out, he, he's getting ready to initiate construction on facilities and hiring staff and all of these things to move forward with a bid. Correct. The problem is, only two teams have expressed any kind of support. Everybody else has kind of said, yeah, we don't really think this is beneficial to F1. And even worse now, apparently, Stefano Domenicali is pushing back. Interesting. And that, I think, is a problem. So the the argument that Stefano has, and, and that several of the teams have, and Total Wolf is one of them, is that the teams are healthy. Mm-hmm. And this is... And, and Stefano's right here. This is probably one of the first times in 40 or 50 years of F1 that every single team on the grid appears to be in a good financial state. Now, admittedly, a lot of that is because of the um, the budget cap. And we'll talk about the, the budget cap later. But admittedly, a lot of this is because of the budget cap. And it appears to be reeling in spending to some point. Mm-hmm. What we don't know is, well, yes, they appear to be healthy. We don't know how healthy Williams and Haas truly are. We know they've been struggling, and there's some question there. But, you know, he points out the fact that all the teams are healthy, and if we bring in another team that's diluting the prize fund, it's diluting the revenues that are going to all the other teams. And that's why he says he doesn't want to do it. Now, if you think about it, though, if you are, you know, you have a lot of money and you want to turn it into a small amount of money, you, you buy a Formula One team. And that, that's what Michael is proposing to do, because one of the things that you have to do if you are starting a new form, and you don't have to do this if you buy one, if you are starting a new Formula One team under the Concord Agreement, is you pay into the prize fund $200 million dollars to offset the dilution of that prize fund. Right. So that makes me wonder, 
what Stefano is really talking about. I mean, at least in the first couple of years, there'd be no delusion of well, the prize fund for all the other teams. And then the theory is that the money would grow because you have this extra person. The, the question that I guess folks are raising right now is that because of the popularity of Formula One and the increased revenues that they're seeing as a result of that, would $200 million truly cover that? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but $200 million is still a sizable amount of money. And if the bid is done right and things are handled appropriately, I kind of question as to whether or not there's really, you know, that they need that, that there would be a need for them to pay more because all the other revenue and all the other pieces would grow with that. Correct. So I, I don't know. And then you also, you look at the fact that, so word came out this week, and I don't have it in our lineup, but word came out this week that... Um, Formula One is negotiating with ESPN for renewal of the U.S. broadcast rights. And right now, ESPN pays something like $5 million a year for the broadcast rights, which, to be honest with you, when you think about some of the the other sports in the U.S., that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, right now we have uninterrupted commercial free coverage of the race itself brought to us by mother's polish not necessarily remember it's also crowd strike <laughs> I hate that commercial just just that voiceover is horrible um anyway um we have commercial free coverage of the race themselves we get the practice sessions which they can interrupt with commercials um we get at least an hour to an hour and a half of pre-race coverage. And by the way, reminder, that's not all the, the, the full broadcast package that Spy, that Sky puts out. No. Because they have pre and post qualifying probably an hour on each end that they also put out. And post-race, there's at least an hour that they put out that we do not get. And all of the content that's available on the red button. I want a red button. I could get you that. It would cost us money. <gasps> Say it isn't but, so. But there's a way to get the red button coverage on our UK network. Oh. We should discuss. I mentioned it to you. You told me no last time. Well. That we pay enough for our streaming services to date. Well, it depends on what you're willing to give up. But anyway, so renegotiating the television uh, package, for the broadcast package for the U.S., we don't know entirely what the new deal would include. What we have heard is that, one, Formula One, citing the the dramatic increase in popularity in the sport in the U.S., want to increase the broadcast fee from $5 million a year to $75 million a year. Oh, my. Yes, that's staggering. Um, They are still in negotiations. Um, ESPN has not thrown their toys and and, and walked away. I think they recognize the value of this. Um, ESPN has also acknowledged that while 
Yes, they be they are being asked for substantially more money. They are not considering changing what they're doing for the broadcast to interrupt the races with commercials. Um, they are looking at options, and that doesn't mean that there won't be commercials during the race broadcast. But what they are committing to is that the racing would not be interrupted by a commercial break. So it could be a split screen like we used to see occasionally. Um, with, Which with was a NBC horrible Sports. experience. It, it wasn't a great experience. But, okay, when you're talking a more than 10 times increase in the broadcast cost, you may need to look at some other... Because at some point, I think either CrowdStrike or Mothers is going to go... Yeah, that's an awful lot of money you're hitting us up for that we can't even put put out a message other than commercial free is brought to you by us. Well, run a banner at the bottom of the screen. And and there's that possibility too. But um, the split screen experience, especially when there's a voiceover yeah, on it. It's not great. And what they did the last time they tried these split screen experiences, they made the race screen the smaller of the two screens. Mm-hmm. You could bear. I mean, even on our bigger screens, you could barely see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, and I guarantee this is what will happen, the only action during the race occurred in those moments. Well, the other challenge that, that they would run into if they did something like this, especially if they cut the audio over as well, is we would run into the same problem we had the very first year that ESPN carried formula one in the u.s and and it was the first races because they realized that it was a bad idea and changed it is that thought that you know the david croft and um martin brundle have absolutely no idea when espn cuts to commercial Mm -hmm. which means they're not pausing their commentary they're not doing anything to allow for a commercial break and mid-sentence off we go to a commercial yeah so that's probably not going to be a great option either. They're, they're going to have to figure something out. Um, now, since we don't know what is on offer for that $75 million, it's also entirely possible that it includes the pre and post race, the, the bigger pre and post race package that um, Sky puts out. And that would come with additional commercial revenue. And maybe that's how they cover it so that they don't have to interrupt the broadcast. But we don't know. I mean, there's other options. They could put some of that extra content, red button content type thing, behind a paywall. I mean, they could do that as, mm-hmm. you know, that's the premium streaming section. You could generate revenue that way also. I mean, there's other ways to skin it, but the race coverage itself needs to be without interrupting commercials. I don't care if you put a banner at the bottom or a bug at the top or whatever needs to happen for that piece of the puzzle, but you cannot interrupt the commentator. You cannot make a smaller screen experience. Full stop. I'm I'm, I'm highly opposed. We'll see what happens. We don't know. I will start the phone campaign now. Okay. So, other news. Yes. The the driver exemption or the jewelry exemption for drivers has been extended. So it was supposed to end at the end of May. It is now being extended through the end of June 
three more races so that further talks can take place between um, the drivers and the F1 medical staff. Okay. Or the FIA medical staff, rather. I have a dollar bet that they will come up with a compromise. They should have already. I'm betting that that's what's in negotiation. But I still also go back to... I think Lewis's position and the drivers in general, I think their position here is unreasonable. I think it's uncalled for and it's unnecessary. So my only, and it's, it's tiny, it's a tiny argument. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is, yes, I fully endorse, you know, the idea that you can't control when you're going to be in a crash that's going to require some type of medical attention that there is a possibility that your jewelry would impede or delay or care. cause greater injury or cause greater injury I, I i get it however i will also argue that those are very limited experiences and not dismissing that when mm-hmm. they happen they're 100 percent of the time but they're very limited 50% of the time. It's 100% of the time. Exactly. <laughs> um, they're very limited. And there are specific piercings of some types that close up very, very quickly. And I would offer up that there needs to be a, an ability and an exception. And there are products out there that they could to keep the holes open because that's part of what they, they have. And... So if the nose ring needs to have a clear plastic stud, that's possible. And I think that's where we have to come up with an exception that that's not metallic that would interfere with the MRI. It's not something that would impede medical care. That's where I think that there will be a compromise. That's my prediction. I still go back to tough you're a race car driver it's while you're in the car if those piercings are a problem don't have those piercings sorry I, I i have no sympathy here for the you know 10 hours total over a race weekend that we're talking about big deal so it's just Says the person who's never had to re-pierce anything in his entire life. So and, and, I, but and, I and yes, hear that, you. That's and, true, but this is how you make money. This is your job, and if your job says that you need to do this for your safety and for us to care for your safety, you either accept it to continue your job or you find a new job. I, I have no sympathy here. I disagree. I think there's a compromise. If this was a, if this was a matter of F1 turning around and saying, and the FIA and, and, and FOM turning around and saying, you know, any time that you are in team attire at any event representing Formula One, you can't have this, I would be on the driver's side. I, I would support the drivers on this because... There, it's more of an image, and these guys do have a right to express themselves in the manner that they would like to, as long as it's not offensive, and none of this jewelry is offensive that I've seen. 
I would agree that they have a right to wear their jewelry and whatever piercings and whatever to their press conferences and media events and whatever. Absolutely, I would support that. But in the race car where nobody can see any of that stuff and that it truly is a potential safety issue, I can't support it. So, yeah. Other news. Mm-hmm. Talk about driver stuff. Um, thing, we, we know that, that the last year and a half now has been fairly disappointing performance-wise for both um, Daniel Ricardo and, and McLaren. And be, specifically Daniel's performance with McLaren. To be honest, Daniel's had a rough period since he left Red Bull. He has... But at least when he was over at Renault, you know, everybody acknowledged that the car that Renault handed him was not particularly great. And the benchmark that everybody had to to use to, to judge Daniel's performance was kind of in the same place. Now that Daniel's over at McLaren and... You know, if, if Lando was struggling just as much, it'd be one thing. But the fact that Lando has been out-qualifying Daniel on a regular basis and outscoring Daniel on a regular basis, it's a lot harder to make that argument that this is a car problem. Mm-hmm. Th- this is truly a driver issue here. Um, and it's... A lot of people have said it. It's baffling because we know he knows how to drive. We know he's a good driver and he can perform well in a car. We don't know what it is about this car that isn't working for him. Because the thought was, wow, stick Daniel in a Mercedes and just look out. Yeah. And we haven't seen that. And it's been a big difference too. Because that's the other thing is... I kind of expected that worst case, Daniel and Lando would be nipping at each other's heels. Yeah. And it hasn't been what we've seen. No, Lando has been taken off on Ricardo, and Ricardo's been, quite frankly, bringing up the rear. Well, Zach was asked about it this weekend Mm -hmm. and and into this week about, you know, is the team concerned? What are their thoughts were? Um First off, going into the weekend, Zach acknowledged that Daniel's performance since coming to the team has not met expectations, Um, which is alarming in its own right. And Daniel's response was, you know, his skin is not just beautifully tanned, but it's also thick, Um, which, (laughs) I mean, that's typical Daniel Ricardo attitude. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess Zach was pressed further over the weekend in Indianapolis because he wasn't out in Monaco. He was pressed a bit further on this and the situation. And Zach acknowledged that even though Daniel's sitting on a three-year contract and he's in year two of that three-year contract, it's not watertight that he would stay, that there are mechanisms for performance and other reasons that could cause them to exercise an exit clause with this contract. 
Interesting. Which is very alarming. Now, the leading candidate would be Patricio Award, who um, very interested in moving over into Formula One. He's done fairly well over in IndyCar. Um, from what we hear, really nice guy, mm-hmm. really popular person in the paddock. Um, we didn't hear as a matter. He was mentioned a couple of times when we were at Road America by a bunch of different people, and all of them talked about how much they like Pato. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's concern that, well, A, obviously he's a rookie with no experience in Formula One, but there's concern about whether or not he's ready to move into Formula One yet. Um, but he's also older. You know, you look at, and, and, and the example that everyone gives right now is you, you look at Yuki Sonoda and you look at how wild he was last year mm-hmm. and he's gotten better but he's still you can see that youth you can see that inexperience there and is he ready to be brought up because he didn't come through f2 correct so we don't know but you know one could argue that if you've done very well at indy you know is that is that some of, does that also give you some of that maturity that you wouldn't have the comparison to Yuki necessarily. And certainly the owners of, and, and it's it's one of the questions around IndyCar because IndyCar is obviously not technically a feeder series for Formula One. Mm-hmm. And obviously the owners and the promoters of IndyCar bristle kind of strongly at being considered a junior series compared to F1. Yeah. Um, and they view themselves very much at the same top tier that F1 is. And what we've seen is, you know, movement in the other direction. Drivers typically go from... When drivers move between the two series, it's going from Formula One to IndyCar. We've never seen that I know of a driver going from IndyCar into Formula One. And some of that has to do with the super license points. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That'd be a very interesting thing. However, circling back to Ricardo. Okay. And tying things up with a little bit of a bow. Wouldn't it be awesome if McLaren does exercise exit clauses? Mm-hmm. And one of the teams over in Indy picks Mr. Ricardo up. And he then wins the 500. Yet another person yeah. winning the 500 that Alonso can't finish. You know, to, to be quite honest with you... I wouldn't be... I mean, we know that Daniel Ricardo has a home in L.A. He spends mm-hmm. a lot of time in the U.S. It would not surprise me in the slightest if when Daniel Ricardo decided it was time to leave Formula One that he shifted over into IndyCar. Yeah. Would not surprise me in the slightest. Um, I mean, I could also potentially see him going into NASCAR, but I think IndyCar would interest him more only because it's open wheel. Yeah. I'd like to see him in IndyCar personally because, you know, I could stock him. Because you're willing to go to IndyCar races. I am not willing to go to a NASCAR race. So on the topic of, of McLaren. Yes. We're still talking about McLaren. McLaren announced this week um, that starting from this weekend's Grand Prix in Monaco, that their car would now carry the Senna S. Which I know bothers you. You think moving forward in... in you know, that this, there's a stigma attached to the yes because 
Ayrton died. Now, admittedly, he died in the Williams, but because he died in Formula One, that carrying this is looking at the... That, that's what you said about why you thought it was a great idea for Williams to finally move past it and take the S off the car. No, I, I said that it signals a new generation for Williams. It signaled a, a, a look forward, not a look backwards. Um, and the reality is that Senna never drove for this version of Williams. Well, so, he never drove for this version of McLaren either. Well, there's that. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I, I do believe fervently in at some point you have to start looking forward. Now, you know, it also hurt my heart that they pulled Jenny's butterfly off the, mm-hmm. the car too. So don't, don't lay it at me that I'm oh, opposed I'm to the Senna ass. It is a you. I'm going to have to go back and check the records because I don't think I said what you accused me of saying. I'm I'm laying it at you. So, calendar talk this year and races. And and first thing we've got to mention, originally, as a reminder, this was supposed to be a 23 race season. Um, With the situation over in Ukraine and Russia, Formula One rightly made the decision to cancel the race in Sochi. Um, however, they have now decided that they will not replace the race. There was a lot of talk of, well, maybe we'll go back to Turkey. Maybe we'll go back to, to Portimao. Um, they were, and, and even Qatar had come out as a potential replacement this year, despite the World Cup going on, um, for the race in Russia. Um, Formula One has decided they will not replace the race this year. So we are looking officially now at a 22 race calendar uh, for the season. Okay. So Mercedes is going, one less to worry about. One less. (laughs) But there's now talk about the 2023 calendar. Okay. And while we have nothing official, you know, there's no new agreements that have come out. um, Formula One, and, and I think this makes a lot of sense. Formula One is acknowledging that, you know, if we want to purport to be a green race or a green series and if we want it still be global and we want to expand the calendar which we're getting to the point where i'm getting lukewarm on this idea of expanding the calendar it was good for a while but now i'm starting to get a little lukewarm on it but they've acknowledged that you know if we're going to do this we really need to look at the logistics mm-hmm. and we need to look at how we stage things and how races move because really does it make sense for formula one to go from Barcelona to Miami to Monaco to Montreal mm-hmm. to Azerbaijan to and you know should we be looking to regionalize more of these races and regionalize the approach and, and I think we had mentioned this in the past that you know we're probably getting to that point when we need to look at approaching Formula One from a region perspective yeah because the travel's killing people. If you want to be environmental in your approach, you've, you've got to kind of tighten this up a little bit and maybe having four different packages going around the world at the same time and every time they move is a halfway, you know, a journey halfway around the world into the next hemisphere. Maybe this is not the right way to approach it. Correct. So... The teams are interested in it. Now, coming with this, they're talking that maybe 2023 would be 24 races. Oh, my word. That may be a bit much. I don't know. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. 
But it also, you start to wonder, looking at where they're going and the times of you. So the, and we'll talk about Monaco in a second, but one of the things that they want to do is they want to bunch Miami and Montreal together. Well, you can't do that if Monaco's in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But now you start looking at the time of the year. So Montreal in June, that's eh, not too bad. I mean, yes, it, 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 can, it can get hot. But usually it's not crazy hot and it's not crazy humid. Miami in June, even end of May. It's It's awful. It's kind of awful. And if you wanted to keep all the North American races together, well, okay, so now you're going to throw in Texas, which just is awful. And oh, by the way, Remember that year we had Texas that was disrupted by the hurricane comes through. When is peak season for for Texas getting hit by hurricanes? June. June and July. Because they brew up in the Gulf of Mexico and pop right into Texas. But historically, they put Texas, the Austin race, in November because Mm -hmm. the weather's a little bit better in Texas in November. Miami wouldn't be bad in November either. Mm -hmm. It's better there. But it's winter in Montreal in November. Yeah. And we know Vegas is going to be in October. Or November. November. In November. And Vegas only makes sense that time of year or early spring. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to bring Formula One to Vegas in June or July or August. The tires will melt while they're sitting on the grid. Well, and they're having to do a night race. You mm-hmm. know. It is a desert. It does get a hundred and something degrees during the day in the summertime there. So it's like, yeah, it sounds great on paper. Let's have all the North American races near each other. That sounds great. Except when you realize that the climate is very, very different from Miami, which is technically subtropical. Yeah. To Montreal, which has four distinct seasons very short summer and longer winter and sometimes those four seasons happen in two days well that's <laughs> that's the way it is in chicago that's what i know um but very different climate at different times so when it is comfortable in montreal it may not be comfortable in miami mm-hmm. austin similar and then you've got the vegas element in that and oh, by the way, it's not a lot, a hard leap to then turn around and go, oh, well, wait a minute, Mexico City's not that far away. Yep. And we've got Brazil that, you know, on again, off again, Brazil. You know, it makes sense to try to keep it in the Western Hemisphere. I get that. But how do you time it so that all of that flows? The European season has always been sort of, you know, it's the European yeah. season. But even still for Ever in a day, Montreal's been Memorial Day weekend. Here in the States, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, not Montreal. No. Uh, Monaco has been Memorial well, Day we're weekend. We're going to get to that, too. And then it hops over to Montreal just shortly thereafter, and then mm-hmm. back to the European season, which has always been odd. So and, and that's I can't imagine. because of Monaco. And, and we'll get to that because that's one of the pressures that Monaco is now facing. Um and in general, Stefano Domenicali, and, and we've heard this before, has thrown out the threat that some of these traditional European, historic European tracks are under threat. Even more so after the race in Barcelona. The, 
the thing that everyone is discovering, and, and Barcelona experienced one of their largest crowds, and it was probably the first time in a very long time that Barcelona sold out. Mm. Extremely large crowds at the race this year in Barcelona combined with a heat wave. That resulted in kind of a perfect storm of issues. Um, what we've been hearing is that inside the track, the atmosphere around the race they've described as electric. Also dehydrating <laughs> because what they found was there a there weren't enough vendors to go around. There weren't enough trash bins to go around um, because there weren't enough vendors. And we were talking a heat wave. Water was in extremely short supply, both inside and outside of the track. Um, inside of the track, they didn't have any dedicated beverage sellers, so it was the same vendors who were selling the food who were queuing up large backloads of orders because they're trying to prep food for the massive crowd that they weren't been they couldn't turn drinks fast enough so folks were struggling to get drinks and then logistics in and around the track between very large traffic backups problems with shuttles getting folks to the train stations problems with the trains being able to accommodate all the crowds it was a problem and, you know, we saw something similar a couple of years ago in France with the, the traffic getting backed up. You look at the, the um, British Grand Prix in Silverstone back in 2011-2012 when logistics were a massive hurdle with them and then they had the rainstorm that muddied everything out. We heard about it in Spa as well this past year that the weather turned and they couldn't handle the crowds and the facilities kind of broke under the strain. Stefano Domenicali's message to these venues is you can't just throw open the gates and let all these people come in. You can't just jack up your prices. You've got to invest in the facility to handle the crowds and handle the logistics because if you don't, we're leaving. Mm. And, you know, he's got, he's got a valid point. It's a perfect valid point. I think it's a great Point. The the question that I have is, you know, you're pushing these tracks to host these crowds that they see once a year. When you come in with your event, so what investments are you making to help this problem? Because you're part of the problem. Well, and it can't be a one way street here. The other the other thing is, I mean. Economics 101 mm-hmm. tells you that you can control crowds by yeah. jacking up the prices. Because once you put the barrier to entry up high enough, you will control because at some point you'll make this you'll make the same amount of money with fewer people. So you can then limit back on the logistics issues because you've got fewer numbers of people in the strain in putting a strain on the system. So it's a little disingenuous to say, well, you got to invest in the facilities yeah, and when the reality is quadruple the tri- ticket prices and you'll get a third less people well, you, being you able to afford to come. necessarily need to quadruple the ticket prices either. You don't even necessarily need to increase your ticket prices. You could just sell fewer tickets. And that's the claim that the organizers in Miami have said and I've heard a rumor, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard a rumor that actually the event was operated at a loss. 
um, despite the fact that the tickets were absor- were exorbitant. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did reduce, they, they did not sell tickets to fully meet demand. And it was done intentionally because they didn't want to saturate the roads. They didn't want to overload the facility with more people than it could handle. Now, we still heard about problems in Paddock Club and some of the others um, over service delivery and, and those kind of problems. I don't know. Interesting. I mean, if you're Formula One, it's not a bad problem to have. But it's not if a bad your problem sport to is have that popular. Until word gets out that the experience at the track yeah. is substandard. That's Don't the go there. Watch go, on TV. Watch mm-hmm. it on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, create watch parties of your friends. Yep. You know, that's when that's when it becomes a problem because that's now a five-year solution because now you've got to overcome mm-hmm. popular opinion. Yeah. It's it's one of those things of you never really want to be on the other end of that. But it's a manageable problem. We'll, we'll, we'll see how this shakes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- with all of this talk about stuff shifting around, According to um, Liberty Media head Greg Maffey, um, Mayor Eric Adams of New York offered Formula One a, a potential site for a future Grand Prix. Oh, down Broadway? No. So actually what, and, and Greg Maffey has said that, yeah, cool story, thanks bro, but no, we're not, we're not doing this. We've already got three races, and so, and he also said we're not keen on this location. So, what he offered up, what what Mayor Adams offered up, was to host the race on Randall and, or excuse me, on Rikers and, and Ward's Island, because they're connected to each other. Around the prison? No. Okay. Because. And, and remember, the, the two are connected to each other. Yes, the prison's over on Rikers, um, but Wards has um, athletic facilities. There's the, I think now a minor league baseball stadium is there. There is sporting facilities on the island. Now, Wards Island, that's the old Potter's Field, isn't it? Where the poor were buried? No, I think that's Orchard Island up off the Bronx I could be wrong but there is one up off the Bronx that's Orchard on on Orchard Island I don't recall if Ward still does or did there there's some off of uh, between Queens that was essentially it was Potter's Field and Mm -hmm. they've now redeveloped it and it's it's quite expensive real estate but um we learned that on our tour. Yes. Um, the Formula One has said, we, we appreciate that. That's not where we would want to be. And I can understand it just from that perspective of the logistics of getting the circus out there mm-hmm. would be a challenge. Oh, yeah. Now, what he said was that, you know, we don't think, and, and when I say he, I mean... 
Greg over at Liberty said, we don't think the city would be willing to shut down Central Park for us. <laughs> He's probably right, too. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that's pretty much the gambit that they've thrown down, is that if Formula One's going to come to New York, you need to do something better than Rikers Island. I mean... You gotta wonder what that email looked like. Hey, got a great idea. We want to bring you to New York City. We're gonna offer you Rikers. You mean the place with the prison? Well, yeah, but you know it's 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 green. Yeah. <laughs> we can hide the barbed wire in post. I, I, who thought that was a good well, idea? Well, you, you just put the bleachers in front of it. Oh yeah, because yeah. that's that's never been a bad idea. <laughs> so that then leads us to this weekend of Monica. Yes. Um, news came out, and, and I think this is just a larger conversation about Monaco in general, not just the race. Um, news came out this week that Monaco has not renewed their contract with Formula One mm-hmm. to host the race. And both Formula One and Monaco are deep in negotiations. Now, I did hear something which I did not... Re- we had heard for years that Monaco was the only track on the calendar that did not pay a hosting fee. Mm -hmm. And this may have been true under Bernie Eccleston. We don't know. But apparently they have been paying a fee the last couple of years. Now, it's not a huge fee. Mm. Um, You know, at most it might be 5 to $10 million, which when you look at what Saudi Arabia is paying, which is like dump trucks of millions of dollars. Uh-huh. It, it, I mean, it, it's like thirty or forty million a year for ten years, something ridiculous like that. It, it's pennies compared to to that. Um, but they are paying a fee. But there's, you know, obviously, folks have been complaining about the quality of the racing there for years. Mm-hmm. So Formula One's like. Mm, you know, historic tracks are under threat and we're really popular. And you look at the spectacle that we just had down in Miami. Do we really need this spectacle here in Europe? You know, Miami, with everything that they did, was a much bigger attractor of celebrities. It was potentially in Formula One's eyes at this point a much bigger attractor of potential sponsors than Monaco is. Do we really need Monaco? Now the drivers, have, they went to the drivers this week and they said, you know, what do you think? Formula One might not come back to Monaco. And they all jumped up and down and said, well, absolutely, Formula One. Monaco not on the Formula One calendar isn't Formula One. And I had to think about this because it was like, well, I get it and I get the point, but then you look at what this track is and what goes on here. And it is the slowest track of the season. It is a track that the teams modify the cars specifically to run here because they can't run like this anywhere else. It doesn't produce passing. It is tight. It is narrow. When similar features are introduced at other tracks around the globe, the drivers 
complain mightily about it. But they're okay with it in Monaco. And I thought about this and I realized what it is. I realized why the drivers don't want it to go. 90% of the drivers live in Monaco. It's their home race. Well, it's not just that it's their home race. It is the rare opportunity that somebody who likes to drive cars fast can legally drive cars fast in their hometown through the streets that they live on. And that's kind of exciting. And I, I, Yes. I don't, is that justification for a race? Mm. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's really all it is. I, I think that every person, driver, a spectator, team, understands that Monaco does not produce great racing. It used to, though. But, and, and we got to mention that. But I think that the key about Monaco, what makes Monaco special, is its history. And it's being part of that history. And the acceptance of, we get that it's not a great race. And we get that in the calendar, not everything is the Super Bowl. Like, it can't Well, be. see, now, if you ask Liberty right now, and you uh, ask and Stefano Domenicali, that's the goal. And they're wrong. Yeah. But at some point, you have to have the connection to the past. That's what Monaco's race really is, is it's a connection to the past. It is the, it's it's a jewel in the triple crown. Think about it. You would never have a triple crown anymore if you pulled Monaco off the race calendar. That's why the drivers love well, it, is the potential of that having too. that goal. And, you know, it's, it's all of those cachet things, even though we all accept, it's... It's a parade. It's not a race. It's a parade. And we know it. And we're all sitting on the edge of our seats going, are they or are they not going to end up in the wall? Full stop. That's the question. Well, but also, in terms of at least visually, it is everything that every street race wants to be. You know, that whole atmosphere of... It's tight. It's close. You're running between the buildings. The fans are hanging off the balconies. The the yachts are you know the road runs right along the media and or, or the the harbor rather, and the, the yachts are backed up right up against it. And it's tight and it's narrow and it's it looks dramatic. And these fast cars driving through these tight areas looks dramatic. It's not exciting racing, but it looks dramatic. And that's what I think every other street race strives for. But the problem is what you need to do to have good racing, what you need to do to have safe racing in these modern cars you can't do in Monaco. Well, exactly. If your car is two and a half meters wide Mm -hmm. and your street is three meters wide (laughs) you're not passing Mm. and passing makes good racing we know that you're not passing in monaco because of the the narrowness of the roads it's visually stunning it's a parade and we all accept it for all of the historic 
cachetness of it. I all. think there's one other reason why we don't get a lot of passing in Monaco, and it's because compared to just about every other track, the braking don't because the speed is slower. The braking zones are slower, mm-hmm. and because or, or the braking zones are smaller rather. And because you've got the smaller braking zones, your window to even set up a pass is dramatically smaller than any other track. And that has an impact on it too. Well, I think you're negating the late braking, the advantages of being able to late brake and go into some of these corners very specifically. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that some of them are just incredibly tight because it's a... It is a street circuit. And you've got you've got other things that make it visually stunning. You've got the tunnel that they're in the dark and then they mm-hmm. get blinded by the light. All of those things feed into what makes it a cool visual race, even though the racing itself is less than. Not to say that we haven't had good races. We've had good moments in races in Monaco. And, and that's, that's one of the key things because I think if despite what the 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 commentator said this weekend and yes there was a lot that happened a lot of different events that happened around the race this season and during the races this or this year but when the cars were actually on the track trying to race it wasn't that exciting this year Mm-mm. despite all of the stuff that was going on that was interesting and it was, you know, I'm, I'm glad these things happened. But when the cars actually hit the track to race, it wasn't that great. We've got to face it. Monaco is about everything that happens just on the outside of the white line. Mm-hmm. It is a lot less about what happens between the white lines. That's fair. And I would argue that it still has a place on the calendar. And I get it's got its issues and I get all of those things. But there is something special about Monaco. And I I would not be happy to see it pulled from the calendar. Now, does it change? Does it become a different kind of race? A different experience, let's say it that way. Does it does it morph? Do they actually sit down and say, let's pull out a clean sheet of paper and say, look, there's not passing that happens in Monaco. There's not things. Maybe we do something inherently different with Monaco. Well, and I don't know. I mean, I'm throwing it out there as an option. I I would throw out there that honestly, Formula One needs to look at this trend at growing the car's both in length and width mm-hmm. in general. And is that truly the way that they should be going? With all these tracks that we hear that passing is so difficult, well, a lot of the reason why passing is so difficult is because these cars are so wide. We've seen the pictures from the 50s and 60s of the F1 cars two and three wide going up the hill toward Casino Square. Mm-hmm. It can be done in an hour or a car and it's exciting maybe that's the option is formula one doesn't need to have cars that are that are these big but there's some other things that are being talked about and apparently there's i think about five yeah there's five different factors that that formula one is trying to 
settle with with the the automobile club de monaco who actually is the race promoter and, and holds the race number one is like we mentioned the hosting fee mm-hmm. and um actually the thought and while it's still confidential the thought is that the fee that they're paying right now is somewhere between 12 to 15 million dollars a year they want to bump it up not nearly to the level of everybody else's especially you know saudi arabia and qatar and some of these other and even vegas and miami but they want to bump that fee up a bit um so that that is number one um they also are pushing for monaco to be more flexible with its race date again we talked about the regionalization of the calendars monaco has been adamant that they do not want to move and that's why they haven't been they do not want to move off the last weekend in May. Mm-hmm. So they're pushing Monaco to shift that. There is arguably some room here because the track is actually set up for a couple of weeks in advance of the race. It's not like the track is set up just for this weekend and then broken down. As much as we know, it's a big disruption. But it's like a good chunk of May, they're hosting events at the track. I mean... We, we saw Charles Leclerc binning Nicky Lauda's car. Um, not his fault, but that was the Monaco historic races on the same track. So Monaco could make some adjustments. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they want to, and I think their idea is that probably Formula One is the pinnacle and they want it to be the last run- event of the series, but I don't know. Well, the other thing is, if the track is set up for the majority of May, they're still not going to be willing to move it outside of May. Because mm-hmm. what they don't want to have is this other stuff that's going on in May, and then they have to take everything down to then put it back up in June or yeah. something insane like that. So you got to figure out what's what is flexible and what is not flexible. Mm-hmm. So next thing that Formula One is pushing on is around TV production. This is one of the few tracks where production of the event is handed over to the locals Mm -hmm. it's not f1 now given what we have seen this year i don't think we'd really notice a difference (laughs) because this year's tv production and kind of the same last year too kind of sucks and 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 i think last year when we watched monaco it was it was bad Mm -hmm. It, it was worse than normal um so there there's a push to try and unify that structure like i said I don't think this is really going to have as much of an impact because overall, our coverage has sucked. Um, sponsorship and advertising has been another big one. Um, if you didn't notice, around the track were signs for Tag Heuer. Mm-hmm. Tag Heuer is not an F1 sponsor. Tag Heuer is a sponsor of the Monaco Grand Prix and the Automobile Club to Monaco. The official timekeeping sponsor for Formula One is Rolex. Correct. A competitor of Tag Heuer. Mm-hmm. Formula One's apparently a little bit upset over the fact that Monaco cut side deals for their advertisers. <laughs> and cuts, you know, unlike every other track. And, you know, as much as we haven't been to Suzuka in years, one of the most notable and glaring things that you see is when we go to Suzuka... There's that Ferris wheel mm-hmm. that has a sign on it that's blanked out. That's an advertiser at Suzuka. Formula One makes them cover it up because 
that advertiser does not pay fees to Formula One. Hard Rock happened to have been a sponsor of the race and of Red Bull, and you can see the Hard Rock logo on the car. Otherwise, could you imagine what Bernie Eccleston would have done (laughs) for Formula One to be at Hard Rock Stadium and Hard Rock not be a sponsor of the race? Yeah. So, but they got away, they would get away with it over at, uh, in Monte Carlo. Zepter had their signs and Magneti Morelli, who doesn't advertise anywhere else, mm-hmm. but just there. Because it's a deal that, that Formula One was cut out of. Ouch. And then the last piece is logistics. And there's not a whole lot I think that Formula One can do here. Now, there's all, we've known for years that, the, the trucks come in and they unload and, you know, they, they come into Monte Carlo, they unload, and then they basically leave Monaco. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the official paddock is like a couple of miles away from the track. Um, there have been upgrades to the pit lane facilities, and it's at least a little bit better. But, like, the hospitalities are shut down. Any other track somebody gets hungry needs a snack or something like that they can wander over the hospitality grab it they're good once the race starts in monaco they're out of luck this year and apparently it's not the first year but this year the hospitality for the media the media is pretty ticked about it the hospitality for the media didn't even include enough sandwiches for all the credentialed media personnel oh my yeah splitting a sandwich with jenny gal uh-huh so just remember she she's lactose intolerant so so you're not getting cheese on your sandwich um and she's a vegetarian yeah so jenny was willing to you know give up her cheese and turkey on her sandwich yeah (laughs) um now who was it from williams that offered the banana oh that was yascapito yeah yeah offered the the banana to um ted kravitz yeah (laughs) because Because the race was delayed, and yeah. here I think you might need this. <laughs> Here's a banana. Um, yeah. I mean, I hope they get it sorted out. I'm sure they will. I can't. I, I like the drivers. I cannot imagine a season without Monaco, even though we all go into it going, it's Monaco. Now, all of that is now compounded by this weekend. Mm-hmm. So, if you saw the race... The race itself was delayed by over 40 minutes. And some of that was weather-related, but apparently there was more to it than just that. When the weather came in and we had the rain, the pit area suffered a power outage. Mm. That knocked off the starting system. And at some point, we also know during one of the red flag periods, the media center lost power as well. Well, obviously, you're negotiating for a renewal here, and they're already upset about your facilities, and now you can't even have stable power, and that disrupts the start of the race. That's not going to go over real well. Well, I can't help it that somebody unplugged the giant Lowe's extension cord that connected the pit lane to the one plug over in the harbor. Well, the, the truth was, it was Nico Rosberg going, "Hey, what's this switch do?" in his in his apartment. <laughs> flip, 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 flip. 
<laughs> yeah. He wasn't even at the track. He was up in his apartment doing it. We've had this switch here for years. I don't know what it does. Let's see. Now, now is the day I want to, to figure out what this switch does. Yeah. Pretty much. But that was the reason why not only the race was delayed. And yes, they were concerned about the rain. And they they did want to make sure. And, and I question the decision. And I agree with Martin Brundle in his position that, you know, these drivers, they're supposed to be the best in the world. They should be able to drive in the rain. It was not for at least the first couple of minutes, and we could have gotten a couple of racing laps in, that it was safe. We could have started something. Mm-hmm. And I, I question this idea of, well, they've never driven in the rain here and, and nobody has experience running. This isn't F3. Well, it's this not, isn't a junior series. It's not F3 and it's not a junior series and all of that. But if the reality was that it was more around the starting systems and the power grid, that was not being communicated. It was not. So the assumption was, especially when it was like barely sprinkling. I mean, mm-hmm. there was no reason. Like we saw, you know, as they started panning into the paddock, they everybody standing around going, we don't know why yeah. we're not going. No umbrellas, nothing. And the reality is, as as the word has come out, my guess is they were dealing with more of the power issues delaying the rain, the, delaying the start, than actually the rain at that point. But nobody was telling anybody that. If mm-hmm. they had just said, hey, we somebody needs to plug us back in, yeah, it would have probably changed the narrative. It, it would have changed the narrative. It, it would have made a lot more sense. Because we're all looking at each other going, well, why at least is not Bird Mylander? Out there in the safety car, whether it's breaking up siding laps, and and honestly, he probably should have been out there anyway, breaking up the puddles and checking on the conditions, even if they were struggling with the power. The only thing that I can think of is it knocked off communications too, and probably did, and that's the only thing that makes any sense that they didn't tell anybody because they couldn't. But of course, burn. I mean, we we saw the picture. Burn was sitting there in the driver's seat with his cell phone. Oh, you know, the the. Nobody had Burns' number to text him? No. I mean... I, it's a very private number. Apparently. I, yeah, I, I don't know what was going on there. there. There was... I do think they were challenged by the steward. And I hate to say it, and not the stewards, by the experience of race control. And I hate to say it because, one, I don't think necessarily that um, we would have seen anything better from Michael Mossy. I'm not convinced. And that's not to knock Michael here. But given what happened, given how this went down, I'm not sure that Michael would have done anything differently. But I don't know. It did, however, feel like there was a general aversion to risk. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've complimented Michael in the past because we've seen that he will put safety at the forefront. Mm-hmm. But this seemed like we went a little bit too far. And in a lot of ways, it also kind of felt like we were afraid to, to make the risk. And we were looking for the safest of the safest possible options. And there is some risk here. And we have to accept that. So I don't know. 
Yeah, I I don't think we fully know all of the problems that they were facing at that moment, but we know for a fact that the race director group mm-hmm. was all um they're they're all learning. They're learning on the job right now. They they're are. new. And you know, there's part of me that says, "Well, cut them some slack," but then the other part of me goes, "It's still the pinnacle of racing." So they they shouldn't be making rookie mistakes. But well, the the other thing that I have is, is the fact that the FIA put themselves in this position, and I don't mean that strictly from the perspective of you got rid of Michael and you didn't have anybody to replace him. I put it from that perspective of you didn't build a structure to grow race directors. No, because apparently you always thought that Charlie was going to be here. Mm-hmm. That Charlie would be here forever. But even after Charlie passed, they didn't put in a structure to grow race directors. And it was only by a wing and a prayer that that didn't bite him in the butt in 2019 and 2020. Mm-hmm. Really? So, in, in a way... This is the FIA's own fault. Can't disagree. So, um, Christian Horner, and I'm sure he's just the first, has said that um, we really need to take a close look at what happened here. Mm-hmm. And and the, the chaotic start here needs to be investigated, needs to be assessed. And in a lot of ways, I think to us, it felt like the race stewards and race control was flipping through the manual because they didn't know the answers. And I don't mind the broadcasters and the pundits and the broadcast team and us flipping through and having a discussion of, well, we think that article whatever says this and this is how it should work. I don't like it when it feels like the folks who are running the show feel like they're doing it. That's a problem. Yeah, but I think that's the inexperience. I get it. It's big and it's complex, but still. Um, so end of the race and congratulations to Sergio Perez, um, for having a strategy work out perfectly for him. Mm -hmm. Really? I mean, he had a good drive, but the strategy worked for him perfectly. Um, this is where I've also got to say for everybody who at race two or race one was going, Ferrari's back, Ferrari's back. Charles Leclerc is going to win the world championship, even though we have 23 races to go. This is where I say, see, this is Ferrari being Ferrari. Mm-hmm. They had struggled to get out of their own way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because Ferrari lost, well and truly lost this race that they should have won. Mm-hmm. And this is what we have seen several times over the last couple of years of even when Ferrari should be doing well they screw it up mm-hmm. and they can't sustain it and they can't maintain it and i have a feeling that that is this is what we're going to see is through this year of yeah we'll get these glimpses but when it when push really comes to shove there's going to be too many of mistakes like these that are going to cost ferrari the title and they're going to cost leclerc the title mm-hmm. um that said at the end of this race Ferrari protested both Max and Sergio Perez, uh, specifically their exits from the pit lane. And we saw some replay of this, and they tried to get it a couple of times uh, on the Sky coverage 
specifically around Max and the question of whether or not as they were both the Ferraris, as they came out of the pit lane, did they cross the pit exit? Or or both Red Bulls. As they came out of the pit lane, did the Red Bulls cross the pit exit line, that yellow line? Mm Mm-hmm. So the rule is you can, and especially in a track like Monaco, you can't cross that line until it ends, and then you can cut over. We could see in the videos they were running really close to the line, so they challenged it. When when or they protested the victory, alleging infringements. And by the way, you pay a fee when you do that. It's not it's not free. <laughs> you can't just write a letter and letter and say, "Well, I'm done." Um, both were reviewed by the stewards. Both were dismissed. Mm. So specifically for Sergio Perez, and his was the the closest to egregious. Um, when they reviewed the video, yes, the tire came across the line. It didn't fully go over it. So part of the tire was always on the line. The notes from the director, and these were the same notes from last year as well. They said they copied them from word for word, was that you had to fully cross the line. If the tire remained in contact with the line, they did not consider it crossing the line. Got it. So Perez, they threw that out. When they looked at Max's, Ferrari came back and said, yeah, we, we looked at it. Max didn't actually go over the line. So this was, there, there's really no grounds for this one. So that one got dropped too. Okay. So both of the protests were dropped. And they forfeited the protest fee. Because that's what happens when it dropped. But you have such a tight window to to protest. It's mm-hmm. If you think there's any chance of winning it, it's better for you to go on and protest. And then double check everything. Yeah. We saw for the second time this year Mick Schumacher with a massive crash that this time um, walked away from a lot faster. And honestly, I think this one probably shook him up a lot less. Hmm. Um, But second time that he broke the car in half. (laughs) The last time it cost the team a million dollars. This is probably going to do about the same. But this is the way the car is supposed to break. It is. Everything worked the way it was supposed to, other than the fact that it was spectacular looking. You know, no harm, no... Well, other than to the checkbooks. <laughs> no harm, no foul. <laughs> but better it be to the the harm be to the checkbook than to the person. True. That's, that's the way this and, is supposed to do this. Again, the fact that Mick was up and out of the car even faster than the last time it happened. And some of that probably had to do with the the design of the track and the speed um, because what he did was he clipped the wall and it just sheared off the back, mm-hmm. which it wasn't, and he wasn't going nearly as fast as the other time. Yeah. Um, so we talked, and, and I, I know I'm looping back. It's, it's a little disconnected here. <laughs> but I need to talk about the events of the race before we got to this one. Um, Mohammed bin Salem has put forward a proposal. We don't know where it's going to go yet, but he has put forward a proposal to train WRC co-drivers. So the guys who sit in a passenger seat as the car's whipping through the woods and the dirt lanes and the trails with the track notes telling the driver 
when to turn, when to break, when to do all those guys. Mm-hmm. He is proposing that a plan to train them as race uh, directors. Under the idea that they make snap decisions and basically yes. can process lots of information in you know very short periods of time. Basically, yes. That makes sense. That, you know, high stress, a lot of stuff going on, and they can be focused on what they need to to make these snap decisions and, and handle these stressful situations. Um, he's acknowledged that he doesn't have anybody in mind yet, but he sees this as a way to start growing future race directors and also start to build that path of moving race directors through the series so that all of the various series that they manage are feeders for each other. Okay. So I think it makes sense. We just don't know where it's going to go yet. Moving out of Formula One. Okay. We're on a home stretch now. Okay. The timer's going. Three laps <laughs> left. Yeah. Um, Kimi Raikkonen. You remember him. He retired last year. He did. He And he's been, for the most part, away from motorsports. Apparently, other than... Um, his son Robin, he's been doing some coaching and karting. Aww. Um, but he will be back for the first time back in autosport this year. We'll be driving in NASCAR at Watkins Glen. One race only. So th- this is not a permanent return. And uh, apparently, the last time that he drove, because he's driven in NASCAR before. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only like one or two races kind of a thing. He did once in NASCAR, one in NASCAR trucks. Right. Um, this is one of those deals. Uh, there is a new team that is trying to get established in NASCAR called Trackhouse Racing. That specifically what they are looking to do is to reserve one of their cars for international drivers. Oh. So that you know, folks like Kimmy and other drivers in other series around the globe get the opportunity to drive in NASCAR. It's an interesting idea. I just don't know how that works in the business plan. I, I don't know either. But, but then again, I put my, I'm put i an ostrich when it comes to NASCAR. Yeah, I know. Um, speaking of appearing out of nowhere. <laughs> okay. In what we had hoped of, well, in this, it wasn't so much with Kimmy, but in what we had hoped of was relative obscurity we get a story about Bernie Eccleston. What did bad hair Bernie do this time? Well, everybody check your bingo cards. <laughs> Let me know if you have it on your card. Bernie Eccleston got arrested. No, do not have Bernie Eccleston got arrested. Bernie Eccleston got arrested carry- for carrying a handgun onto a private plane in Brazil. That's illegal? (laughs) (laughs) It's Brazil! Yeah, apparently there was a police check as he was boarding uh, to fly from Rio to Switzerland on a private aircraft, and they discovered an unloaded handgun in his carry-on bag that he claims he did not know was there. Did he not pack his own suitcase? Well, there is that question, but, you know, again, let's remember that Bernie's also 91 years old. So, I mean, maybe Fabiana packed it. Maybe she was trying to... Maybe Fabiana packed it intentionally. 
to get him arrested. We don't know. He did get arrested. He, um, he was locked up for a short period. He was detained for a short period of time, paid the fine, the gun was confiscated, and he was released to return, resume his journey. I'm sure that mugshot needs to appear somewhere. Yeah. So, he has been released, but Bernie Eccleston, you can mark that off on your bingo cards. Bernie Eccleston arrested for carrying a gun on a plane. Do you think he was strip searched? Not financial fraud. No, 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 not financial fraud. Oh, no. Just remember, they got Al Capone on on tax evasion. So, you know, it's entirely possible. But do you think he was strip searched? I thank you for, you know... <laughs> None of our li- none of our <laughs> listeners wanted that image you've just handed to them. You're welcome. He's 91, remember. So our last story. Christian Horner and his latest grenade that he has dropped. Mm. So a lot of talk going into this weekend about the, the cost cap and where teams sit with it. And there have been rumblings since Barcelona that uh, suspicions that certain teams may have exceeded the cost cap. Mm. Um, so Christian Horner let loose the the bomb that he believes that because if, if changes are not made to the cost cap by the end of sometime mid to end of the season, that several teams, not one, but several teams, may have to miss races, as many as four races at the end of the season, so that they don't go over the court the cost cap. Interesting. Now, we haven't heard what the penalties are for going over the cost. And I think that's the big question. We don't exactly know what the penalty is for exceeding the cost cap. It's a fine. Well, I'm kidding. I don't know. I mean, is it a fine? Is it a grid? Is but, it grid penalties? What is it? We don't know. But think about that. Going if, if it's a fine, like for example, that's why I thought it was kind of a ridiculous concept. You exceed the cost cap. So pay us more money. So pay us more money. How does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Christian makes some valid points at this point. That, you know, inflation is up and it's higher than everybody thought. And they're seeing increased costs of living for payroll. They're seeing significantly higher logistics costs for moving stuff around as fuel has spiked. Um, those are all concerns. But... and And... We know that teams are staggering upgrades. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's really what Horner's trying to get at is the fact that teams can't develop an upgrade at the pace that they want to because of budgetary concerns. And especially if you're in the middle of a title race and you pushed back your 22 development because you were in a heated title race for 21 and couldn't stop your development in August of 21. You're kind of on the back foot. Yeah. Now, not all the teams are in alignment over increasing the cost cap and making changes to the cost cap. Most notably, a green car. A green car that in Barcelona was accused of being the latest copycat of Red Bull. With, By the way... And it wasn't talked about on any of the Sky broadcasts, but the picture was going around the Red Bull team. You know, obviously, they drink a lot of Red Bull. 
okay. trackside. And there's a lot of Red Bull cans spotted throughout the garage and on their pit wall. Interestingly enough, by midday Friday, early Saturday, all of those cans were green. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Interesting. Green Red Bull cans magically appeared Friday into Saturday around the Red Bull garages. Interesting. But racing, or not racing point, Aston Martin. Formerly racing point. Formerly racing point. Um, has been fairly adamant of, you know, one, we're not going to agree to movement in the cost cap. And two, while yes, we've seen increased costs, we're not over the cost cap. And we've still got room. And if we can do it, why the heck can't you? Mm -hmm. Now, what I don't know is we know that Lawrence is building a several hundred million dollar facility for that team. Right. Where's that money coming from? How does that apply to the cost cap? It doesn't. Actually doesn't. Okay. Because the cost cap is very specific as to what gets covered on that cost cap yeah. and what doesn't. And the infrastructure um, costs to build a facility are capital improvement costs that's outside the cost cap. It's directly related to the building and developing of the car. Okay. So... For example, none of your marketing people apply to the cost cap. None of your hospitality people apply to the cost cap. But we do know that wind tunnels do. Wind tunnels do because it's directly adjacent to the development of the mm -hmm. active car. Uh, parts, upgrades, those things apply to the cost cap. But not some of, and not all personnel does necessarily. And I have a sneaking feeling that some of what's keeping some of the teams under the cost cap is some creative bookkeeping yes bookkeeping <laughs> i was gonna say financing but financing wasn't the right word and titling might management be. and titling so you know if you can turn around and say that maybe your chief engine designer is also a part-time marketing intern um and that you know yeah. somehow you could you know, they're part of the branding team or something. And it's this collateral duty, so it's only a portion of their salary. Mm -hmm. You know, how much creativity is going into how you account to that cost cap? Marketing has decided that Gerald, the, the engine designer... Um, he does one interview on one thing. That's a marketing function. Therefore. No, they've decided that his function is crucial to the success of the team and the marketing program. Mm -hmm. So they pay 95% of his salary because if he designs his part well, the team does well and that's good for marketing. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be that creative yeah. level of financing. But I think that's part of the... The equation is what counts and what doesn't count. But I can't imagine teams not going to races. I, I, I don't think, as much as it's stunning to hear this threat thrown out there, mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine a team, especially, so, so the allegation is like the top four or five teams, according to Christian Horner, are that far over the budget cap. But... And, and some of this, I think, it begs the question of, well, what's the what is the true penalty 
if you're over the budget cap. Because if you're over the budget cap and the penalty is, well, you have to take 10 place grid drop on all your cars for those race for the races that you've now gone over. Well, yeah, they're going to show up. So, okay, they have to start at the back of the grid. But if they've developed a good car and they can blast up into the points or whatever, you're not going to give up the points. What they should have done, and I guess, like we said, we don't know. Mm-hmm. What they should have done is whatever you are over on the cost cap, you forfeit in the prize money. So if you spend yeah. $2 million above the cost cap, it comes it comes off the top in the prize money. Yeah. So that's two million off that, and that's the way you get to the number. Like, mm-hmm. the, and and that way somebody can actually make the financial decision of okay, if my development is going to cost me, you know, ten million dollars, mm-hmm. and the difference between fifth place and third place is forty million dollars, better believe. I am going over the cost cap to get that extra cash because I'm only going to give up thirty. I'm only I'm still going to get thirty million for my mm-hmm. ten million investment, and that becomes a different math equation. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's the way they did it, but that's the way I would have structured it. Let people go over, take it out of their prize money, redistribute what they went over down down the stream. So we'll see how this plays out. I, I don't think Horner's threat is real. I don't either. But again, it, it depends on where things are. And I, I agree with Christian that nobody really saw the inflationary rise that has happened this year. And I would think it's fair to turn around and say, yeah, let's bump it up another 7% because fuel has gone up the way it was. And some of these other things have. So we'll see what happens. But... Um, we, 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 thanks, thanks to Christian, we have to wrap things up so that we don't go over the cost cap and, and, and we can't have I, a show I've the been end of the year. worrying about our budgetary. We'll, we'll have to keep an eye on it. So we're going to have to cut the show short here. And you know what? So we we may not have a show next week. We, we may not. Just, we just, keep just to make sure we, we, we stay under the cost cap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.